0: Welcome to this episode of Van Attorneys Legal Pad podcast. This is a podcast by Van Attorneys PLLC, a law firm of attorneys licensed to practice law in the state of North Carolina. The content of this podcast is not to be considered as legal advice for any particular situation or case, and this podcast does not constitute creating an attorney-client relationship. Welcome to another session of Van Attorneys Legal Pad podcast. We are really thankful that you have joined us, and we look forward to this conversation. Ian Richardson and myself, James Van, um, are hosting today. So, Ian, it's always a pleasure to hang out with you, and it's another beautiful day in paradise. How's your day? It's going great. So, uh, we have picked a topic today that uh, is pertinent to a lot of our clients, and I know we a lot of our listeners deal with uh, post-judgment collections. and. What that really means is after you get a judgment, right, you're trying to figure out how to collect um, the dollars that the court says that you're owed. And we're going to be looking at that in just a minute on corporate debt. But before we get to that, we're going to uh, follow in our format. We're going to look at one of the legal issues the current legal trends are going on. Um, so we did a webinar yesterday and we had several questions about text messaging and whether or not text messages can be used in court. So Ian, you are uh, an amazing lawyer um, that I would hire every single day of my life. So let's say I've got a a, a civil dispute with um, someone um, and say in a business context, okay? And I have some text messaging back and forth with the owner of the company. Um, do those come in the court? I think they probably will. So, Ian, you're right. Uh, obviously, um, the the thing that we want to make sure our listeners and our clients understand is, um, for the most part, I mean, given some evidentiary issues, hopefully we can get the text messaging in. Text messaging has become a way of communication, obviously, um, for society. And those text messages certainly can come into court, again, given that you can get them into evidence. Um. And and a lot of times now when discovery is going on, that's emails and and texts are pretty much the first things that are asked for. uh, Or when they're asking for documents or uh, correspondence back and forth, that includes text messaging. So um, what's been your experience so far when you enter into discovery in a case um, and you start looking at text messaging? Is that a goldmine sometimes or what's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I usually think about it in two ways. Uh, The first thing that I'll do if somebody comes in to me uh, with a business dispute is I'll ask the client, do you have any text messages? And then uh, usually they do. So we get those, we download them, and that uh, tends to frame how we develop the case. So our client's own messages are helpful. But then in discovery, we'll ask the other party, For any text messages that they have so these will be text messages with others not just our client or maybe our client uh, didn't have a copy of a message on their phone or they uh, lost their phone and the messages started a certain date so yeah messages are a huge gold mine because people are less formal whenever they're Mm -hmm. sending text uh, and i think we're kind of to the point with emails where Enough people have been burned in court by something that's put in an email that uh, people are more cautious in that more formal setting as opposed to uh, text messaging, which people, I think, are still unsure that that can actually come in.
0: Yeah, I think you, you bring a good point, especially on the the formality of it, right? I mean, it's easier when you're sending a text. There may be abbreviations. It may be even uh, icons, right, or you use some kind of uh, emojis, um, those, there's a case I was telling you and I saw not too long ago, it was not in North Carolina, um, but there's a question as to what do the emojis mean in the text messaging? Certainly when you, when you send a, a text and you use an emoji, right? Are you trying to, most people are trying to say something, wouldn't you agree? You know, yeah. how, how do you interpret that?
1: Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think uh, the interesting thing, I'm I'm a little bit younger than you are. And I think some people in my generation use emojis to mean one thing and then Some people in older generations use emojis to mean something else. And then people who are even younger than me might use different emojis to mean something else. So uh, there's this kind of age issue that uh, comes into interpreting emojis.
0: Yeah. You know, I hadn't even thought about it from an, from a aging standpoint or from a, just a generational um, standpoint, but that that's a great analysis. Um, So I, I think based off what we've talked about before, Ian and I probably would would advise you as uh, for those who are clients is to be really careful when you are texting, right? Make sure that you are keeping to the facts, right? Try to keep the emotions out uh, as best you can, because that's generally where it starts to turn sideways or blows up. And, you know, you don't want to, you don't necessarily want that to be aired out in court, certainly in writing in a text message. Um, and even with the emojis, right? I, I don't know. I mean, like you say, a smiley face might mean something to one person and totally different in another context. So um, think about that, especially in the business setting when um, you are sending text, uh and, and for potential litigation, be, be mindful that those will come into, the, in the, in the, to probably into um, evidence and be in the play for interpretation. Um, and the same thing about voicemails, it sort of goes together. It's just, that I'm thinking about it, most voicemail systems, at least in the business setting, can be converted to into email, right? And then all of a sudden, you got a transcript of that voicemail, or maybe even a copy of the voicemail. So all that can come into evidence now. Um,
1: yeah, I've gotten some great information through uh, voicemails that go to emails because we request all the emails. Well, the other side's required to turn those over, and now all of a sudden we don't just have emails, we have voicemails. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And you know, one other thing about this that I think is important are your preservation obligations. So obviously, if a preservation notice uh, gets sent to your office, you need to do what that says, or it can have some negative consequences. But also just from an internal standpoint, uh, if you know the litigation is Imminent. I think it's a good idea to send something around to everybody to remind them to preserve all their electronic data, including and especially text messages.
0: Yeah, good advice. All right, Ian. I think you're going to lead us off today on post judgment uh, collection against corporate debtors. So, what does that mean?
1: Um, Well, it's, it's an interesting topic, Scott, because after you secure a judgment, whether it's by default, like we talked about, or otherwise through a trial, or through summary judgment, Uh, unfortunately the courthouse doesn't just print you a check for whatever that amount uh, happens to be. It'd be nice if that were the case, uh, but unfortunately the taxpayers don't subsidize judgments. Um, So you have to actually go out and collect on the judgment from the judgment debtor. And in this episode, we're going to discuss uh, what that process looks like when the debtor is a corporation or an LLC versus an individual. And in our next episode, we're going to uh, discuss the process when the debtor is an individual. Each process is generally similar, but there are some additional steps that you have to take with an individual debtor um, that we're going to get into next week. So the first thing uh, that we typically do once we have a judgment against a corporation uh, is we'll figure out, all right, where does this corporation have property Um, because if they don't have property in the county that we secured the judgment in, we need to do what's called transcribing that judgment to the county or counties where they do have property so that we can actually execute on the judgment. Uh, so to sort of illustrate this point, I'll give an example. Uh, if we've sued a new Hanover County corporation in Wake County for some strategic reason, or maybe there was a uh, clause in the contract that said that's where the dispute is supposed to be litigated. Uh, the Wake County judgment doesn't automatically attach to property in New Hanover County. Um, but getting the judgment to attach to the New Hanover County property of this corporation is really simple. Uh, all that's required uh, to, to do that is we fill out a form and then pay a small fee. Uh, and then the clerk uh, transcribes that judgment from Wake County to New Hanover County. Um, Now, when you sued a debtor uh, in the county where all of their assets are located, this step in the process is uh, not necessary. Uh, But it's important to know where your judgment debtor has assets, because uh, even if they conduct business in New Hanover County, if they've got a bunch of property in another county, you may want to transcribe the judgment to multiple places. And the The process is really simple and allows us to do that fairly easily.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And then, uh, and once the judgment is docketed or filed in that county, you automatically have a lien on the real property at that point, in line with any other lien claimants, right, or any other judgment claimants. But it's certainly, that's great advice. So once that happens, right? So from that standpoint, if you, if where there's a corporate defendant. What we do is we then ask the clerk to issue a writ of execution um, and the writ of execution is a court order. Now, they, the clerk can't do this until after the appeal period is run, which is the 30 days right after the judgment's entered. But right after that, you can get a writ issued, uh, writ of execution issued by the clerk, and the clerk calculates right everything that's owed. And they look at the order that the judge signed, right? It's the, um, the, the principal amount due and owing, hopefully attorney's fees, interest, court costs. Anything else that the judge says or the court says that is due and owing, they include that on the on the writ of execution. The clerk signs it, and then we take that writ of execution, hand it to the sheriff or send it to the sheriff. And there's a little bit of a fee with it, but you send the the writ of execution to the sheriff and then the sheriff starts looking for assets that uh, the corporation owns in that county. So if you know that they have real property. Or if you know uh, where they bank, or if they have, you know, uh, trucks or cars or whatever it may be, right? Um, you can start looking for those assets uh, and start and tell the sheriff as well. Um, a lot of I think part of our success uh, has been we really try to work hard with the sheriffs, and they there are a lot of them that do an amazingly good job in looking for assets. But if you know of stuff, right? If you as a client know of stuff that they have, tell us so we can tell the sheriff but we'll also do some research and try to tell the sheriff where those assets are or what they are, uh, so that they can start looking for those assets. And, uh, the thing I try to advise, certainly if it's a corporation that's in business, um, look for the assets that you can find readily, right? Hopefully you find stuff that has value to it. Those writs of execution are good for 90 days. That is from the date that they're issued. They're good for 90 days, but if, if for some reason you can't find the assets or you can't get it all done within 90 days, you can always have it reissued, have the writ of execution reissued and you get another 90 days. So um, that sort of works. That's how that works in. And hopefully that makes sense for folks.
1: Yeah. So I'll talk just a little bit more about what the sheriff actually does. And uh, first, let me say that we have some really dedicated sheriffs throughout North Carolina who work with us to try and, Uh, recover assets on behalf of our clients who secure judgments. Um, But what the sheriff does, and uh, most sheriff's departments have uh, dedicated deputies who all they do is they work on uh, executions. So uh, they go out and they they literally are boots on the ground looking for assets. So they receive the writ. And let's just assume that uh, the corporate debtor is a small manufacturing company. So what the sheriff is going to do is he's going to show up at this uh, manufacturing company's facility and uh, have the writ of execution in hand and look around and basically start taking, in the case of a manufacturing company, tools, equipment, things like that. Um, And what we often see happen when the sheriff shows up, if the business is actually still operating at the time the sheriff shows up, If uh, the sheriff's getting ready to seize this business's table saw, for instance, and that's going to shut down their business, it's amazing how uh, reasonable people become whenever uh, all of their assets that they need to do business are getting ready to get taken away. Um, So if the sheriff locates some assets or has otherwise made contact with the judgment debtor, then the sheriff will uh, typically communicate with our office about how the debtor responded. Uh, A lot of times we find ourselves in situations where a corporation is defunct and there isn't a business with a room full of assets that we can go and seize. And that makes sense if you think about it, because if the business was really functioning at full speed, it's probably able to satisfy its obligations. Um, So, uh, you know, the sheriff will, seize whatever assets there there are, assuming there are any to be seized, um, and then the sheriff sells those assets, uh, and then the sheriff takes a small percentage out of those proceeds, and then the balance goes to the creditor. and Hopefully that balance is enough to satisfy the amount of the judgment, but if it's enough to satisfy it uh, in part, then we just have to keep on looking elsewhere. So, James, tell us about bank levies uh, and how— we can use those as another tool to get paid.
0: Absolutely, and you know, and as we start talking about bank levels, you look for look for the pressure, right? Hopefully, you look for areas where you can get a response uh, from the debtor to hopefully pay up. Um, and give you a little bit of a war story. One time, we had a we got a judgment on a fairly large box store book seller. Right, I won't say the name of them, but we got a judgment against them and um for some reason their corporate attorneys did not really ever show up and after we got the judgment they sort of ignored us and we kept saying guys you know we're gonna have an execution issue if you don't get this paid narrowly they "They just ignored us and it's like okay so we had the sheriff go out and sheriff said what do i do because this is again a really large uh box big box store bookseller and i told him i said here's what I i want you to go in and take the server in the back room don't take the desk the computers right Take the server in the back room. He's like, huh? Because if they take that, guess what happens? Their cash registers go down. Their whole system goes down. So he walked in and that's what he said <laughs> to, the, to the manager. And it was about maybe 15, 20 minutes later, we got a panicked phone call from the corporate attorney. Number one, he didn't cuss us out, but it, it was almost that way. And I was like, hey, you need to call the guy with the gun that's at your store and tell him this, right? Because he has a court order to go pick up this. And it was about an hour later they wired the funds 100 percent to us so we get our client paid. So the, re- the moral of that story is look for the pressure, right? And sometimes it's bank accounts that you can levy, um, and that's a great tool. So a lot of times we seek a court order that will freeze the bank accounts uh, of the debtor. Uh, again, there are certain provisions you got to apply before you get to do that, and allows the levy on the on the funds. And again, statute the statute of North Carolina support it, and uh, there, there are court cases that support that, uh, but and we try to tend to to cast a fairly broad net uh, when it comes to looking for the bank accounts of the debtor. And a lot of times, our client knows where they're banking. Um, sometimes the bank accounts move around. You know, they they move cash if they're starting to have cash flow issues, or if they're starting to worry about creditors coming in, they'll start moving and open up other bank accounts. Or if the if they're having a banking account or bank account uh relationship failure they'll move somewhere else um uh, but knowing where your your customer um banks is a huge help to us a lot of times um so we we look for the, to freeze those accounts um in the cash in the bank and then and then they're required to do that support order um so a successful bank levy it's it's really about timing a lot of times Ian I know you've dealt with that it's you know you look at the cycle of the business right what does that look like what's the cash flow cycle look like for them um, most businesses have a, a, a cash flow a cycle. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear people argue that, well, that's, you know, that's that's going to be my payroll. Well, it's not payroll because it's sitting in your general account so we can grab it. Or, you know, they'll say that I, that from that was from a big sale. I'm getting ready to go buy assets or buy inventory. Well, you were, but you're not now because we've frozen that. And the, the court has a system as to how and once you freeze it, you know, you don't automatically get it. You got to go through a little bit of a hearing to prove the, the fact that the, those funds are available. Um, and so it's it's all about timing. Um, and it's one of those things we've tried to work on pretty hard. And, and Ian, you brought up a, a, a really good story one number four, I know. Was, and it's always a, it's interesting when you have a debtor who's not responding. When you freeze their bank accounts, what? it's they respond pretty quickly you
1: know? Yeah, at that point. They noticed that this is a real problem. <laughs>
0: That's right. And, you know, I don't know about you, but it seems like, um, the, the accounts get frozen generally Thursday or Friday. It seems like, because people call us in a panic, you know, as you're heading into the weekend and they, there, there's going to be some major catastrophe because of what we did. Right. I'm like, no, no, the catastrophe is you didn't follow up and do what you said you were going to do and pay this. And that's why you got your bank accounts frozen and we'll do this as quick as we can. Um, but most of time people want to get that resolved at that point because otherwise they can't do any banking, which is, you know, again, looking for the pressure. Um, so what happens if you don't find anything know What do you what's your suggestions?
1: Um, well I think that can mean one or one of two things. So it can either mean that the debtor really doesn't have anything, uh, which is the case I'd say about half the time. Uh, the other instance is we just uh, don't really know where to look or where they're keeping their assets. So at that point, uh, we'll do uh, what's called a supplemental exam. And this is a proceeding before the clerk where the judgment debtor has to show up and then we ask them to produce a bunch of documents and uh, all sorts of other things uh, like tax returns, bank records, things that might reveal information about their assets um and we ask questions it's uh it's kind of like a post-judgment deposition uh just a little bit less formal where uh the debtor has to answer under oath about what assets they do or do not have and uh, a lot of times at the supplemental exams uh we may work out a resolution of the debt otherwise uh we'll realize hey this person really doesn't have anything or we might find out, oh, we were just looking in the wrong spot, and then we we know where to go after them. Um, so this is a really good opportunity to uh, basically leave no stone unturned in terms of figuring out whether the debtor uh, is effectively judgment-proof or whether there are actually assets to go after.
0: You know, supplemental exams, uh, I'll tell you, I love doing them because, they, like you said, they have to bring documents, and it's like putting a puzzle together. And sometimes... The puzzle is just empty, right? There is nothing there. They don't have a pot, right, at all to do anything in, and it's just a mess. Uh, they're just broke, right? And we tell all of our clients, we're pretty good at collecting money, but if they're broke, there's nothing we can do to change that. Um, but if they have money coming in, that's different. Um, and I'm, it's amazing to me how often we can find assets that are hidden. Um, and I'm not, there's a couple of tricks that we've learned over the years. I'm not going to say it on the podcast because if the debtors listen to this and it gives up our tricks, but it is a wonderful way to figure out, um, where the assets are. And more times, um, I should say more times than not, but quite often, uh, you can put together or you'll find a piece of the puzzle when you go, I think that's an asset. And lo and behold, there you go. There it is. And there's the pressure. Uh, so it's a lot of fun doing that. So, what happens if you don't recover? Right, we we tell them, don't panic. Right, I mean if they're broke, they're broke. Right, and there's nothing you can do to change that. If they're in business and they're generating revenue, that's a really good thing. Right, we want them to stay in business and generate revenue. But if you just can't find anything, sometimes we just say, hey, look, let's wait for ten years, or excuse me, let's wait a year and come back and look at it. But the but the judgment's good for ten years, um, and you can renew that judgment for another ten years. And I know Ian and I both, and a lot of, a lot of us here in our office, we, we have it happen all the time. We'll get a judgment, can't find anything, we'll close it and wait for a couple of years maybe. Or all of a sudden, somebody calls and go, hey, y'all got a judgment on this You know, six years ago. Um, our, our client wants to pay you know, 10% of the judgment. Well, what's going on? Well, you find out that they either want to refinance or they came into some real property they want to sell now, and they can't because the judgment's blocking it. And you go, oh, great. Let's get this out. Let's get this taken care of. And, you know, that's when you as a as a client get to the side. Do you ask for 100 percent or do you um, negotiate whatever you can get? And I'll tell you, it is an awesome thing when you get a phone call um, and you realize that you have them somewhat over a barrel because they need you to get that judgment, you know, paid and satisfied and marked and marked uh, canceled before they can do anything and you're in the driver's seat, especially if they're getting a lot of money. So it's a, it's an awesome thing, but don't panic. Right. Um, and if, again, if the corporation is in business that gives us all an, an opportunity to hopefully get recovery. So, um, hopefully that helps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, the person who opens our mail will come to either me or Jave and say, we just got this check in the mail do you know anything about it and we'll have to go back and look and it'll be something we got a judgment on four or five years ago and uh all of a sudden somebody had a transaction that required that judgment to be paid before it can close and uh it's a good thing that judgment was in place so it's important to even if you aren't going to collect immediately you can go ahead and get your judgment and then just wait and see what happens yeah um So our question of the week this week, uh, it was actually uh, born out of something I saw on social media. There was a debate that erupted with uh, the latest round of stimulus money as to whether debt collectors can execute on money that someone has received uh, through the stimulus. So James and I started talking and did a little bit of research. And uh, it's really an interesting question because we've had, I think now, three rounds of both stimulus and other uh, economic uh, recovery money that has flowed from the federal government, uh, both uh, for businesses and for individuals. Um, So uh, there have been efforts throughout the country to effectively block debt collectors from executing on whether it's PPP money or uh, stimulus money, just any money that has uh, been paid out as a result of the pandemic, uh, there have been efforts to stop execution on that. Uh, I think the New York Attorney General actually went so far as to say that she was going to prosecute people who uh, attempted to levy or otherwise garnish those uh, funds, which seems like an incredibly complex uh, analysis that you have to do. Uh, you basically have to do a forensic accounting to figure out: all right, were, were these dollars? Uh, dollars that came in by virtue of relief money or these other dollars. Um, But, uh, and actually Congress took up the issue, I think it passed uh, the Senate to uh, exempt these funds from execution, but I don't think uh, it ever made it to the floor of the House. Um, So there was never anything actually decided that said these funds are exempt. Uh, But this is something that we're continuing to monitor because I think states can make some rules about it. Uh, The federal government can certainly take up the issue if they elect to. But right now, our analysis is that any money that was received uh, through stimulus or through any of the other relief measures, that's fair game. Um, And then the question becomes, when you go to execute on it? uh, What type of defenses are going to be raised? And I mean, in my personal opinion, I think money is money, regardless of the source. Uh, and if Congress had intended to exempt this, they certainly could have drafted that into the legislation, which they did not do. And,
0: and along those lines, this more applies to what we'll talk about next time is if there if the funds are, say, um, from a personal injury, like from a medical malpractice issue or some kind of personal injury there, at least in North Carolina, there's a statute that says that that potentially is uh exempt um but like i say and there's there's no case law there's no statutory law and and i'm not even sure quite frankly if congress did that how they would like to say if if those monies go into an account right and they're co with other funds how do you trace that right i mean if there's money coming in money going out all of a sudden you go well which money is which right um so i don't know how they would really safeguard that but Here's the thing is we would we would advise, right, unless we know for certain that there's a violation of some statute or some act, it's I'd rather have that argument in court over once you've frozen those funds than not freezing them and or not having anything to fight over, right? So at least at that point you have something to hopefully grab hold of and try to satisfy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unless we find ourselves in a situation where uh the debt collectors, right? Track- collectors are actually being prosecuted for executing on these funds uh i think the worst case scenario is that you might have to disgorge whatever funds you recover um but i again i'd still rather have that fight than uh not have the opportunity to recover and at least have the argument
0: yeah i agree well good anything else Ian?
1: no i think that's it for this week uh, we're glad that uh, you all joined us and look forward to talking with you soon
0: and the infinite words of a character we all know. That's it folks, see you next time.